I'd like to think that if I was a Jewish guy at the time of Jesus' ministry, that I would have been one of his faithful followers. I have to confess, I'm not so confident I would have been there hanging out with the 12. If I'm honest, I might have been more comfortable hanging out with those religious people, trying really hard to keep those rules, those laws, those things that they had been told, this is how you live for so many years. And then there's this crazy guy, this prophet, this healer, this teacher, this son of God, son of man. Who is he? And he's rocking people's worlds and crowds are gathering and people are following. And I hope I would have quickly come around, maybe not been one of the 12, but then kind of that second layer of people that followed. But I don't even know if I would have been there. It's pretty convicting to me when I think about where I might have found myself if I were living at the time that Matthew wrote his gospel, that anything happened that Jesus lived. Jesus came to bring a new way of looking at life, and we're going to call that a gospel culture, a lifestyle that's firmly planted in a faithful doctrine that's different from what they had known, maybe different than what we know. God's abundant and overwhelming grace And it leads to lives that are changed radically by the Spirit at work. Today I want to spend some time looking at what gospel culture looks like in Jesus' own words to his followers. Jesus came not simply to say, hey, here's a bookend to that thing you've been following, now it's complete. He came to introduce a radical, upside-down, crazy way of living that we sometimes, I think, miss out on and sometimes take for granted. But the way Jesus talked led people that gathered around him to respond like they did in chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 28, when it reads that the crowds were astonished. I want to be astonished by Jesus. I want to be astonished by his teaching. I want to be astonished even more by what it has done in my life. Are you astonished by God's word? Are you astonished when you open up your copy of scripture and read the truth that's in it? Are you astonished when you see what has gone on around you, when you've seen his faithfulness in other people? Or do you sometimes find your faith and this following Jesus thing to be ho-hum, maybe uninteresting, maybe it sometimes feels obligatory? Has your faith resulted in a transformed life, or was it simply a transaction? Was it a, hey, now I'm a follower of Jesus, now I get to go to heaven, now I just do what I want to do? Several weeks ago, we were studying Nehemiah. Well, for many weeks, we studied Nehemiah. Specifically, we got to chapter 8, and I, I hope you remember that week. I remember a deep conviction that week as we heard about God's people doing this amazing work and we spent some time talking about what it looks like to to do the things that God's called us to do but then they spent time reading God's word and you'll remember we talked about the fact that they spent hours reading God's word not 40 minutes 35 minutes not 10 minutes here there they spent literally hours they read it and then they gave the sense meaning teachers were providing context and here's what was meant by this and here's what it looks like and then all of a sudden they got to a point and they said hold the phone We forgot that God called us to do this feast thing, this festival of booths. When we look back and we remember that God took us out of Egypt, brought us into this wilderness, which was terrible, and yet God was so faithful, and we're supposed to remember it by this feast, and they just completely forgot. I don't know, I forget things sometimes. You guys forget things. It's easy to forget things, but you'd think when God does this huge, amazing thing in your life, and then he says, hey, remember it this way, you wouldn't have forgotten, right? Right? But they acted. 
They repented, they obeyed, they started to honor it, and I've been thinking about what that experience must have been like. It's pretty humbling to, to be told, hey, <laughs> you guys, I forgot what it says. Um, and I like to think in those moments when I first read those words, how dare they? I can't believe they do that. And then a moment later, when the spirit works and my flesh steps aside, I say, wait a minute, am I so full of myself, so prideful, so arrogant, so self-righteous to think that I couldn't also have forgotten something that God asked of me? Could there be parts of his word that maybe I kind of just say, hey, it's more convenient to leave those out. And in those moments, as I've thought back on that message approximately six, seven weeks ago, I've found myself digging into parts of God's word that I sometimes find myself taking for granted. One specific thing I decided I needed to do is my takeaway from, man, have I forgotten something, was I've, I've started rereading the Gospels. And I'm trying to do that as though I've never read them before. Now, let's be honest, that's hard um, when you've grown up in the church. Uh, for some of you in this room, you're like, yeah, I've never read the gospel, so that'd be like fresh reading for me, and that's awesome. And I hope that today, as we do some of that, that it's life-changing for you. But for some of you, you, you would say, yeah, actually, that's me too. I, I read parts of it. I remember the parts that I was taught. I remember those cute Bible stories. Maybe you remember flannel graphs or other things. It's really hard sometimes for us to get past the things that we've grown up with, that we know so deeply, that we think we've figured it all out. And then we're like those people in Nehemiah where, when faced with God's word, we might say, oh, wait a minute, I forgot about that part. We forgot about that feast. Now, I'm not saying we need to celebrate the feast. Those commands were fulfilled. We could do it in a memory way, but, but that's not what I'm saying today. What I'm saying is, what is it about what Jesus asked us to do, how he asked us to live, how he fulfilled the law and then gave us a new way of living that maybe we are missing? What is it that we've forgotten about in our personal lives, about what it looks like to live as kingdom people transformed by God's word? We have to be careful that we don't become like religious leaders. When we get to this point, we say, oh, oh, but look at this. And Jesus says to his crowds about these people that are like, no, I follow those things. I haven't forgotten. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and they do and observe what they tell you. You should do that what they observe and tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do their deeds to be seen by others. As we look at a familiar passage today, we have to strike a balance with understanding the life change that's going to happen in us because of God's work that's happening in us, but not be doing because of how others would see us. And so, we are going to look at a familiar passage. You're going to hear some of the words today and be like, yes, I've always heard that. And some of them you might be tempted even to do what I've done, which is to say, oh yeah, I can tune out. I got that thing I need to think about. I'm processing, whatever. I challenge you to listen, not to my words, but to listen to Jesus' words this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're starting off learning what it means when Jesus says in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sometimes I read those words, that phrase, and I think, yep, got it, done, move on. But the word repent is one that's very powerful. We have to remember what this word, we have to think about what this word means. This word repent is essentially saying to us, rethink your thinking, reorder your life. Sometimes we talk about it being a 180 degree turn. We talk about it a change in direction. And if you've spent your entire life as these Jewish followers would have, following a certain set of rules and regulations, and then you're told, don't do it that way anymore. Stop. Your natural response is going to be, okay, so what does that look like? I've always followed these rules, so what are my new rules? I've always followed this way of doing things. What are you telling me to do now? 
And Jesus is going to tell us here what it looks like. I think about my life as a dad to a four and six-year-old. There's a lot of moments where I say, stop! Usually not like repent of your sin as much as stop hitting your sister or hitting your brother. Or stop whatever you're doing. And I regularly just tell them when they ask, why? A good old parent saying is because I said so. Right? You've all said it. You've all heard it. You guys hear it a lot, I'm sure. But in certain moments, I'm trying to do a better job as a parent of not just telling them because I said so, but of showing them why. Why should you stop doing that? Because this is what it'll look like in your life when you don't do that. This is what kindness looks like. This is what obedience looks like. This is God's grace in your life when you listen and obey, not simply because I said so, but because you see what's coming. Four and six-year-olds are still, it's still hard to handle, but they're working towards it. And, and I know they're getting it when they say to Shannon or I, Mom, Dad, you're not being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to be angry. Thank you for hearing. You've repented. You're turning and doing a new thing. I've showed them also what it does, looks like not to do it. And it's great to see that it's sinking in. Jesus is essentially that for us today, saying, hey, stop. He's not just saying, don't do this because I said so. He's saying, stop, and here's what I want it to look like. And in telling people that it's time for a new way of thinking, he talks about this idea of a kingdom of heaven. And he talks about it being now, but he also talks about things that are to come. You'll see that in some of the language this morning, and some of our hope this morning comes from the fact that there are immediate changes that happen in our life, but there's also things that won't happen until the day we are face to face with Jesus. And there is hope and there's confidence that comes in that because that's our reminder that it's not up to us. Jesus is gonna give us a new sort of doctrine, a new set of rules we're gonna call gospel doctrine. This is not the old way of thinking. This is a new way of looking at the world. This is teaching and knowledge that helps us live out gospel culture, which is what it looks like to live by God's spirit deeply at work in us. And when Jesus uses this language, the word kingdom would have been familiar because they had been looking for this future king. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that this language many times, and I'm going to draw your attention to it a couple times, is words that they would know, and Jesus is twisting them into a new way of understanding. He's turning them on their head. Hey, you thought it looked like this. Here's what it really looks like to obey those words. And so as the scenes opens here in Matthew 5, we read that the crowds had been following Jesus. They had continued to be amazed by the miracles that he was doing, the demons he was casting out, the things that he was saying, and Jesus then seems to pull away. The text says that he came up into the mountains and his disciples came with him. And, and we get this idea that he's not just preaching to the masses now. This is a training session. This is Jesus pulling his disciples away and saying, hey, I'm going to talk to you about what these words say. I keep telling you, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And whether it's the 12 disciples or whether it's the 70 or whatever group of people it is, he pulls these followers, these devoted learners aside and he says to them, hey, listen, this is what it's going to look like. If you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you've heard at least parts of what we're going to talk about this morning. You'll remember teaching at some point about being salt and light, because we've probably preached that here on multiple occasions. You'll think about the idea of turning the other cheek, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. You'll think about how to pray. We just preached about this prayer that Jesus instructs us back in January. And this sermon is perhaps one of the most famous sermons of all time, because it's even known to those outside the church You'll think of the golden rule that we always hear. It's on walls of probably every elementary school across this country at least. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, that comes directly from Jesus in Matthew 7, 12. And if we simply looked at these verses in this passage as a prescription for a moral life, we'd be missing what Jesus is getting at. Because passages like these, when taken just as a sliver or a slice on their own, can 
give us a new form of moralism, a new law to live by, and we can miss out on the heart change that Jesus starts with that leads to a change of culture, a change of behavior. It doesn't take much work for us to come up with a new set of living, a new set of standards. We love to say, well, this is the Christian way of doing things. It's really easy for us to even call it the biblical way of doing things. And I think that in some things that Jesus says to us, sometimes we put our lens on it and we're like, wait a minute, Jesus actually has a little different way of looking at that. And I hope that today we will look at it and we'll sit in the uncomfortableness at moments, that we'll sit in this idea of, man, Jesus called us to something that's so much more radical than what my life actually looks like today. And this picture that he's going to give us is not something that then leads us to despair, but it's something that brings us to hope. And so today we're going to spend time and I am actually going to take us down a little different path than you might be used to here on Sunday mornings in that we are going to read the entirety of Jesus' sermon and we are going to listen to all of his words in Matthews 5, 6, and 7. Before I get there, we're going to spend a little bit of time in the first part of it so that we have some context that helps us understand where the rest of his words come. I want us to read these words because I believe that Jesus' words are so much more powerful than anything that I could bring to you this morning. And I want us to read these chapters as a whole because I've realized as I was thinking through and studying this this week that sometimes we take these little parts of scripture and we start forming our view of something but we've kind of missed some of the other things around it and maybe not understood how God communicated this through his son as a whole. We miss out on why Jesus chose to talk about who we are in him First, before we skip ahead to the part that talks about how we live that out. And before we dive into that, God met me this week in in all of these thoughts with some deep conviction. If I'm honest, he had to break me because I wanted this morning for you to think, wow, that was amazing because of this profound truth that came out of it. I did battle with Satan because I wanted you to walk away today with something from what David said. And so confession, God had to break me of that idea of that I have anything to offer. And so I want to give you the context to my words this morning. And part of the reason why we're even going to look more at Jesus's words than my words, because in 1 Corinthians 2, I love the way Paul came to the church in Corinth. He says, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. My prayer for this morning is that as we come from this place that my eloquence or lack thereof my wit or my ideas or anything that I say this morning will far be outweighed by God's word and his wisdom and what is transforming us. If we approach him this morning with a hunger and thirst for what his word is going to bring us, we look for not worldly riches, cheap imitations of satisfaction, but we find that deeply in him. I am praying that today we soak up these words of Jesus in a different way than maybe we've looked at them before. And that we will each experience God at work in us. I hope you experience that every single Sunday here. Because that's our desire. That at Northwest Community Church, we bring you nothing but Jesus and him crucified every single week. And throughout the week. So, with that long introduction, let's dive into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
In Matthew 5, 3 through 10, we are going to see one word repeated over and over again. And it's a word that we love to use. I've learned as I've lived in the South now for long enough that the word blessed or blessed or I can't add a good Southern drawl to it. That word is a great word. It means one thing when grandma says, oh, bless your heart. But it means something different here. Maybe not altogether different, but it means something more. When we see Jesus say this word, which by it we should understand that we are most favored by God. Or that we are fortunate. Or the idea of happiness, but not just happiness that comes from circumstances like I'm happy because I got my way. Or I'm happy because that good thing happened to me. But a happiness that far goes beyond those circumstances. A happiness, a a deep satisfaction that comes from every good gift of God is given to those who... So as you hear these words, as we look at the Beatitudes, as we look at God's kingdom, think through that lens, that we are looking at the lasting joy that comes far more deeply than anything that this world offers from these words. And so now we're going to walk through these statements. We're going to start there in verse 3. We're going to walk through each of them. I'm going to make some comments, and this is going to shape our perspective as then we go into reading the rest of the text together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but I glance over that phrase so often. The poor in spirit. We see the word poor, and we quickly go to like a financial situation. I want you to know that this means nothing to do with finances. This idea, when we think about what these words mean, they were intended by Jesus, the idea of being poor in spirit. Jesus is talking about a complete spiritual bankruptcy. He's talking about this complete understanding that I have nothing to offer in my spirit And bringing that before the Lord. When you've surrendered to God, this is repentance. Repentance isn't saying, well, I've done this and this. Repentance isn't saying, well, because of my actions here or my partial fulfillment of the law there. This is saying that all of this kingdom, all of this repentance, all of this gift of what God wants to do in our lives starts when we are nothing. And this is important to understand because everything else Jesus is going to say starts from this place of complete brokenness and where God's grace meets us in that brokenness. This is the price of admission to God's kingdom. God's kingdom doesn't come because we've done enough. God's kingdom doesn't come because you followed those laws. God's kingdom comes because of our brokenness and his grace alone. And this is this new way of thinking, this countercultural upside-down kingdom that Jesus brings to us that I think sometimes we miss some of what it looks like. And today, I hope we dig a little deeper. One of the things that I think is is easy to miss, is we look at these statements. Shannon and I were talking about this weekend. It's easy to think, well, these are eight separate statements, and you kind of, it's a list of eight different types of people. Throw that out of your head and think about what if Jesus was telling us this is like a pathway, or these are dominoes, that, hey, when you're this, then you're this, and when you're this, then you're this. And think about these words as we walk through these beatitudes, these statements, as though you start with this brokenness, and where does it lead to next? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Think about it as a domino effect. There is just about no other reaction you could have if you realize I am completely bankrupt. I have completely nothing of myself that I can bring before God. That might bring some mourning. That probably brings some sadness. That could bring some despair. And yet, there's comfort. And Jesus is saying that in your brokenness, you will find mourning and I will be there with comfort because your sinfulness is where my grace meets you. He's actually doing something significant for his followers that again, we might miss out on if we don't think about this, but in chapter 61 of Isaiah, 
These same words are coming up, and Jesus is taking these words and helping them see the fulfillment of them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. There's a description for what it looks like to be spiritually bankrupt, brokenhearted, captive, and imprisoned. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all those who mourn. Jesus' words of the Beatitudes are going to convey this fulfillment of prophecies about the king and the kingdom that they had been waiting for and that we need to understand. He continues on in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So we've started with this deep spiritual brokenness. We've now mourned. And the next step is there's nothing left to do but to feel pretty much like I got nothing to offer. And that's the idea of meekness. Meekness is not weakness, as you've probably heard someone say. Meekness is oftentimes translated as humility. The idea of being strength under control. Someone brought low by their sin and mourning can only truly be great in God's kingdom when they realize their place before him. This phrasing is really familiar because these Men and women would have known that Moses was described in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, as being more meek than anyone else on the face of the earth. That word to them, if they know their Old Testament, which these Jewish believers would have had familiarity with this man named Moses, they wouldn't have thought of him as weak. Man, that guy brought a million people out of Egypt, out of slavery, oh my word, all the things he did through the wilderness, right up to the promised land. Not in it. But Moses was not a weak leader. Moses was a humble leader that knew that before God he was nothing and let God work in him, made some mistakes, yes, but Moses was a description of meekness. And so for us, we need to look at that. That's where brokenness and mourning leads us is to this humility before God. Our next phrase continues in what have been inward characteristics. If you think about it, we're still talking about the heart. We're still talking about what's going inside of us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I love this, and yet I'm deeply convicted by it. Do I only hunger for the things of God? Am I most satisfied by what God is doing in me through his word and through his spirit? When we've begun to taste of the comfort that he brings in mourning, and we've experienced his favor, we won't find anything else to be satisfying. But if we haven't experienced that, we don't know how satisfying this can be. Is this true of you? Do you find God's word and his goodness to be most satisfying? More than new clothes, more than an earthly relationship, more than an amazing vacation, a business deal, a good grade, whatever it is. Do we love spending time in God's presence? I think of Jesus' words elsewhere in the Gospels where he talks about that man cannot live by bread alone, by, by every word of God. I want to spend time in God's presence and find that through my own study and prayer and fasting and worship that I love him more than anything else. And that's what Jesus tells us his kingdom looks like. When we begin from a place of emptiness and mourning and then we find ourselves comforted by his presence, we will experience a satisfaction that's unlike anything else in this world. Do the words from Psalm 1 describe our lives? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. 
That's a description of what we'll experience when we find our delight, our greatest joy in who God is and in his word. As we make a shift now to the second half of the Beatitudes, I want you to notice that there's a little bit more of an outward character manifestation. This is not as much about the heart, but more of what it starts to look like in our lives as we see these things happen. Verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Again, an easy phrase to just jump over and be like, yeah, yeah, I show mercy. But is your life marked by mercy? Is your life like the mercy God showed you and I? Or are you more like the servant, if you'll remember or read ahead in Matthew 18, who was forgiven this massive debt, and yet when somebody owes him a tiny little bit, he can't forgive him. Have we experienced God's mercy in such greatness as we've known our brokenness and experienced his word that now we offer that to others? This type of life can't help but flow out of us when we receive it more and more from God. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If we are pure in heart, our hearts aren't divided. Jesus is going to speak to this later on in these chapters, and you're going to hear this, that we can't serve two masters. We have a focus solely on the things of God. And we're reminded, hopefully on a daily basis, of why it is that this list is not a to-do list. It's not a prescription for what we have to do. Paul talks about these things that he doesn't want to do, but the things he does anyways, and the things that he should do, he doesn't do. And Paul gives us this great encouragement of even this great man named Paul who wrote so much of the scriptures, he struggles with this on a daily basis, that his heart was not pure. And I think this is one where we see that God's telling us this is what it's going to look like. We're going to see some of it today, but some of this will fully happen when we are with him someday because as 1 Corinthians 13 says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but one day face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know in full. By God's grace, we will continue to become more pure-hearted and his future grace is that we will someday fully know what that looks like in our lives. But in the process, we'll look more authentic more and more like Christ as the gospel culture and this kingdom of heaven permeates our lives and our communities, our families. And when this happens, when we are deeply rooted in God's word, when we are finding our satisfaction in him, when we know that we are spiritually bankrupt and we are receiving his mercy and comfort in that bankruptcy, in that humbleness, then our relationships on the outside will radically change. And this next domino in this chain of events, describes that outward change in relationships because he says that blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Peacemakers are not people that simply avoid conflict. Peacemakers are not pacifists. Peacemakers are committed to speaking the truth in love. They are committed to overcoming evil with good. Peacemakers recognize that they only have peace by God's grace and that that grace working in them enables them to work towards peace in all relationships. Jesus' final words are fitting in this countercultural upside-down kingdom because in our flesh we'd think, well, when I do all these things, When I look this way, because this is what we're looking for, that then there's going to be this goodness and this greatness. And yet Jesus says in his final statement in this section, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Good news, right? (laughs) Not really. We don't live in a world where this sort of behavior is actually all that much rewarded because 
we'll get to it in a minute, but the flip side is usually really what we look for. But Jesus wants his followers to recognize that his kingdom doesn't mean life is perfect and easy, but that the future rewards realized by us as his followers of Jesus will far outweigh the temporary earthly persecution and insults. Jesus came with this crazy plan for an upside-down kingdom, a countercultural message that is both here and yet not yet. And one day we'll experience the greatest rewards while we also experience his presence To put this in perspective, I thought it could be helpful, and another pastor gave some words that I've borrowed here, of what a gospel culture might look like if we shaped it in modern-day vernacular. Blessed are the entitled, for they will get their way. Blessed are the carefree, for they will be comfortable. Blessed are the pushy, for they will win. Blessed are the self-righteous, for they are smug. Blessed are the vengeful, for they are feared. Blessed are those that don't get caught for they will look good. Blessed are the argumentative, for they will get in the last word. Blessed are the winners, for they will get their way. Now, it might be slightly exaggerated, and maybe you'd say, I would never want to live my life that way. But in reality, the way we act sometimes looks a little more like that than what Jesus says it should look like. Jesus came to flip things around. He came to bring about a new way of living. He came teaching gospel doctrine and gospel culture. He came to make it possible that we could live this way because the Holy Spirit can only work in the broken. When these things happen, it changes us on the outside. We will overflow with mercy, not revenge, not ill will, not any of the things that our sin or our flesh are compelled towards. We will be single-hearted because we will see the things of God and those will radically transform our relationships. We won't try to keep the peace. We will make peace. There's so much more to be said of that, all of this. And maybe someday we'll dig into each of these in a sermon of themselves. And what's the earthly reward? Persecution. But the heavenly reward is this eternal gift, this transformed life and transformed eternity. We are already part of God's kingdom, and his grace enables us to live in the midst of this tension. And we get to be part of that kingdom for all eternity when someday it won't be so countercultural. It will be what we live in. And if we went to look at Revelation, you would see description of this beautiful eternity that God has given us a slight glimpse of that we try to tell our kids what, what we know of it. And it's just, I don't even, I can't even fathom it. But someday we will live there. But today we get to see partial glimpses of it as we live this way. So I want to now read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want us all to listen as if we're the disciples hearing this for the first time. You don't have this idea of these blessed statements that sound more like grandma's bless your heart statements, but you have Jesus' frame of understanding of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The brokenhearted, the downtrodden, the people that know how broken you are and are bankrupt, this is now what your life's going to look like. Listen to his words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as though we're hearing for the first time what God is going to do in us, knowing that there's a tension between what is going to actually look like here on earth and what some of this is still someday to come because it couldn't possibly look as good as he describes it when us broken people are trying to do it on our own. Listen to these words and consider not just the little nuggets that you've pulled out through your life of, oh, that sounds good, I can live by that, but listen to it as a whole. And some of the things may make us go, huh? Am I living that way? I hope we walk away that way. I've been walking away from this this whole week. What does this look like if our lives truly look this way?
And I hope we don't walk away saying, man, look how horrible I am, but more, look how great God is and look what he wants to do in us, in this people, in his people around the world who have been transformed by him. I'm going to read these from a different translation. You're not going to see it on the screen. And if you are more of an auditory listener, maybe, or or learner, maybe you just listen. Not to my words. I'm not going to interject. I'm not going to tell you what chapter we're on. I'm not going to read the headings. I'm just going to read Jesus' words as Matthew records these. Again, three chapters. We're going to go through all of them because Jesus presented this message as a way for his followers to understand not the wisdom of man, but the power of God. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the New Living Translation. This is the Word of God. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you, persecute you, and lie about you, and say all sorts of evil things about you, because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be glad, for a great reward awaits you. And remember, the ancient prophets were treated much the same way. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as though it's worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice right there at the altar. Go and be reconciled. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. 
Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, count it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your strongest hand, stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife unless she has been unfaithful causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, don't make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. Do not say by earth, because earth is his footstool. And don't say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, Offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court, your shirt is taken, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it too. Give to those who ask. Don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Watch out. Don't do good deeds publicly to be admired by others. For you will lose your reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do it as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues, streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth. They have received all the reward they will ever get. When you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private. Your Father, who sees everything, he will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. When you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. And when you pray, don't babble on and on as a Gentile who thinks that their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words over and over again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. So pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth. That is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, then no one will notice that you're fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. Don't store up your treasures here on earth where moths eat and rust destroys, where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven. Where moths and rust cannot destroy, thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, and you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink, enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant, harvest, or store food in the barns for your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Do not judge others. You will not be judged for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls and then turn and attack you. Keep on asking. And you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone? Or if they ask for a fish, do you hand them a snake? No. If you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Do to others what you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell 
is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. I'll reply, but I didn't know you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise, the winds beat against that house. It will not collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand, when the rain and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things. The crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Will you allow Jesus' words this morning to begin the work of penetrating your selfishness, your self-righteousness, your entitlement, your good works? Will you pray with me this week as, and reread these words sometime this week, reflecting on your spiritual bankruptcy so that you might then know the deep, deep, Love of God's mercy and grace in your life as it manifests in a transformed life. If you're already a follower of Jesus, I hope this morning these words of Jesus give you hope and joy that are renewed by his goodness that he has rescued you and made you alive. I hope you find in Matthew 5-7 through a refreshed perspective on what gospel culture looks like, what Jesus came to bring about in this world. And know that God is, not, God is at work in you, but he is not done, and he's not doing it because of you. And if you've never come to a place where you can say you're truly spiritually bankrupt, where you know that your greatest need is Jesus to make you alive and new, and you know there is nothing you could do, what is holding you back from trusting in Christ alone? We would love nothing more than to talk with you about that this morning. The life of a follower of Jesus isn't easy. He has turned our world and our lives and the expectations upside down, but the richness of living with him and seeing his work play out in the world and each of us is far greater than the cost. You can repent today. We can rethink our thinking and allow God to begin a new work in our lives as he brings about his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we bring you nothing, and you meet us with everything. And this morning, as we bring you now songs of worship, we pray that these would be our commitment to looking to you for wisdom, 
for guidance, for strength, for mercy, for comfort. Father, I thank you that Jesus came about to tell us that we couldn't do this on our own, that he gave us a framework for rethinking our thinking, for walking in a new way. God, may your word be powerful and active every day as we know it is. We thank you that it's sharper than a two-edged sword to pierce us, to teach us, to train us for righteousness. Father, we thank you that you are in this place, you are in our lives, and you are working. We pray that we would offer a sacrifice to you now with our worship and response to your word that brings you pleasure and that brings us joy. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.